Good afternoon to clients of Rockefeller, our Rockefeller team, and other friends of Rockefeller, and welcome to the sixth in our series of special client events during this historic time. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Laura Tyson and Jim Messina here. Laura is, among many other appointments, distinguished professor of the Graduate School at the University of California, Berkeley, and continues to add chapters to a spectacular career. She's a former economic advisor to two U.S. presidents, an expert on trade, competitiveness, and economic development. Laura is a pioneer in corporate social responsibility and social entrepreneurship, and she's the first female director of one of the major Wall Street firms, one of my former employers, Morgan Stanley. Jim Messina is the chief executive officer of the Messina Group, and without question, the world's most successful political and corporate advisor. Whether President Barack Obama, Airbnb, Google, Delta Airlines, the Biden campaign, Angela Merkel, individuals, governments, and companies around the world turn to Jim for his counsel, his advice, and his expertise. So today we're going to start with Laura on the economic and policy side. And as after we've uh, had that dialogue with her, We'll build on uh, the implications of that from a political standpoint in the U.S. and geopolitically around the world with Jim. At the end, we'll uh, circle back and get a final thought from Laura and then Jim, uh, and uh, we're off and running on another weekend. So let me start with Laura. Uh, welcome, Laura. Good afternoon. Thanks again for being here. Thank you. It's an honor or a pleasure. It's great. Well, it's great to have you. Um, Laura, the um, employment report today is a great uh, Spot to start. Uh, I mean, yeah. obviously, the, the news may not be uh, be great, but just your thoughts around um, uh, the you know the, the the more granular information in that report. Uh, have we reached the apex of bad news and the nadir of uh, of the whole situation? You know, how quickly do these jobs come back? Maybe we could just start down that track. Okay, let's start down that track. I I want to just make one preliminary comment, which is. The people projecting the economy, predicting the economy, realize that we're not dealing with anything uh, similar uh, to what we've dealt with in the past, so that our macro models can't really project very well this kind of recession. It's an induced recession. It was a recession that was put on the economy uh, because of lockdown. And, and truthfully, in thinking about, uh, say, the question of will jobs come back, when they will come back, I think you have to start with the view that that is going to depend to some extent on our ability to contain and control the virus. So, you know, you hear a lot of discussions about are we switching back on, or, and, and I think the correct statement here is it's not an on-off switch. We're going to move gradually and in a phased way and in, uh, I hope, a targeted way uh, to reopen. And along that reopening trend, which will be upward, there may actually be ups and downs because we may see a breakout uh, that requires containment efforts and lockdown efforts to deal with it. So I, I just want to start with that as an overview. There's a lot of uncertainty in the, in the macro projection. What we saw today uh, was not unexpected. Most economists, based on what we know for the past several weeks, would say we are probably at the very trough of the joblessness. We basically have had um, today, we saw uh, a decline in payrolls of more than 20 million. Uh, that's historic record for any post-World War II number. Uh, we have an unemployment rate of 14.7%. Actually, a number of people were predicting something quite a bit larger than that. So you might look at that and say, hmm, not, not as bad as we thought. Um, if you look beyond, below the, those headline numbers, you see a couple of things that are of interest as well. One, most of the workers surveyed say they expect to go back to their jobs. That's 80% of those workers are taking unemployment or have been unemployed, but they still have a connection to their employer and to that job. So if those expectations are right, that's a great positive. You got 20% for whom that's not true. Um, a second thing in these numbers worth pointing out is that 
these were across the board payroll employment declines. Every sector of the economy is being hit here. Yes, hardest in retail. Yes, hardest in accommodation and travel. But it's happening in construction. It's happening in manufacturing. Uh, it's even happening in the health services industry where people are not going to get traditional normal health services because they're staying away from health facilities or because the health facilities can't do it. So across the board, I'll say one other thing about the unemployment numbers or the, which is we continue to see in these numbers some structural problems which existed pre-COVID and they are going to exist going forward. Much higher unemployment rates for people with less than a high school education or just high school education. Those are double-digit numbers. Those are 20% numbers. People with a college education, 8%. 8%. If you look at differences by race, you see the same kind of differences we've seen all along. The unemployment rates are higher for the Hispanic population than the Caucasian population, just as an example. So there are, we see in a lot of the unemployment job loss numbers these structural problems we have had in the economy. Uh, a ver more than half of the jobs lost have turned out to be relatively low-wage jobs. And this is going to be a problem. This is a problem prior to entering COVID, and it will be a, a problem uh, coming out. So those are some things I would say. We, we, the other thing that economists look at in these numbers is the share of the population who is employed. Uh, this is the lowest on record. Uh, this had the largest increase, monthly increase on record. Another thing people look at is part-time work when it's not voluntary. A lot of people have stayed employed, but they are being employed at less than full time. So they're taking a wage hit, an income hit, uh, but they still have a job. Uh, and then finally, just an interesting note, if you look at the uh, hourly earnings number, you actually see some strength there. It's actually uh, increasing uh, in a, a range that is very strong. Now, what is going on here? It's the compositional effects. The loss of jobs has been concentrated in low-wage jobs. And therefore, the jobs that have uh, remained, uh, that have held steady, are high-wage jobs. And so the average hourly earnings, you see that in the composition effect. So those are some of the things I would say. Look, I, I want to emphasize the uncertainty about when would we get back. Let's say we have a U-shaped recovery with these ups and downs, but it's a recovery. Uh, I want to say that we don't know, but I think it's optimistic think that we can recover to employment and output levels just prior to COVID, February, say. We will not be able to recover your February 2020 numbers until earliest end of 2021. That is a very sobering, but I think important prediction. So Laura, yeah, just on the, thanks, that was terrific uh, in, a, in a great dissection of the of the numbers today and the and the, the underlying trends and the issues raised, some of which will feed into uh, the election and, and some of the topics Jim's going to talk about. It, if if you look at, uh, and, and the speed of the change is just incredible because I think I'm right that at its peak here, but at the end of February, uh, employment in the United States was at an all-time high. Post yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> So we went from the highest <laughs> measures uh, on record. Now, the, the comparison here is with January. The data series started in January 1948. So let's say we, we, we keep wanting to relate to the Great Depression as well, and I can mention that in a minute. But you're absolutely right. On the post-1948 numbers, we essentially had the highest uh, rate of unemployment after having the lowest rate. <laughs> Um, just in February. Mm -hmm. and, you know, the thing, the, part of that feeds into, I think, some of the shock we saw in markets in March um, yeah. and the equity market and even the credit markets have retraced a lot of the ground. Uh, but mm -hmm. for beings anywhere in the country or around the world, adjusting to uh, that degree of change so quickly with literally 
maybe the strongest employment we've seen, not, you know, not maybe, all the way back mm -hmm. to 1988. One of the things that's interesting to talk about any, in any of the conversations we're in, we never expected to be in any of the dialogue around the Great Depression, except in a history book or talking to, you know, people who were old enough to have been around then, as opposed yeah, to the comparison to they keep bubbling here. But if we start, uh, and I know you, you talked about the end of 2021 being the time when we would get back to where we were at the end of February optimistically. What does right. the trajectory look like between here and there? The speed with which jobs return? Because some of the things you, you and I were talking about earlier, the, the medical space where over a million jobs were lost, that's because nobody's going to a doctor until we reopen. But once that happens, presumably almost every one of those jobs will come back. So what's the pace at which we will regain you know, jobs between here and the end of 2021 uh, if things start opening up on a kind of uh, continuous basis? So I, I think that's a really hard question to answer. And I don't think anyone sort of laid it out. You know, you can, you can, what you can do is you, sort of, you lay out what you expect uh, might be the uh, GDP uh, trajectory, and then you project out the employment growth along with the GDP growth. But let me let me say that part of your concern in asking that question is also part of my concern thinking about the difficulty of answering, which is that um, companies uh, are going to reconfigure how they produce using more digital means whenever they can, using more automation means whenever they can, economizing on the cost of labor whenever they can, because the cost of labor will include all of the cost of making human labor safe and healthy and protected, and that's costly. So I do worry that in the, tra the trajectory of recovery, we might not see the same kind of employment gains because of the changes in corporate and business organization that will occur. I also fear that the large job loss associated with small firms in the United States may not recover. I personally think that people are likely to change uh, the way they consume, uh, consuming more at home, consuming more in small groups, consuming more on, online. Uh, and that means that those small firms up and down all the streets where I live, which had lots of workers, um, not well-paid workers and not well-educated workers, but lots of workers, they may not come back, or if they come back, they may come back at 25% of what they were doing or 50% of what they were doing. And so uh, I think the pace of employment gain is really subject to a great amount of uncertainty. Yeah, you know, um, I, think, uh, I think it's a fair answer. And I think uh, my question was clearly a difficult one because uh, it, it, there's just so much that is going to feed into this, including Will everything stay open, and will we avoid, you know, backsliding into more comprehensive lock, lockdowns again? But one of the things, uh, Laura, that you've done a lot of work on over the course of your your career, and that you're focusing on here from a more secular standpoint, this notion of automation of companies um, uh, trying to uh, look at their, uh, you know, their their expense lines and figuring out how can they insulate themselves against. Uh, as much cost as they can that's tied to you know the virus and uh, that's something that you think is going to be with us now for the foreseeable future. Yeah I, I, I think it's I, I certainly know of both small firms and large firms who are already thinking about how to um, produce the same amount or more with fewer people. And I and and that has to do. So these are trends which already. I mean, the automation trend already existed. The digitization trend already existed. Those things I think are going to be accelerated. Um, so, uh, I, but I I do feel that uh, this is likely to be uh, 
essentially, as I said, to dissociate or weaken the link. Let's say weaken the link between a recovery in output and a recovery in employment. That, that, that's what I would say. So most, most economists predict that the uh, overall GDP will fall in, in uh, 2020. Maybe some people say 3%, some people say 4 some people say 5 uh, Overall negative growth year. Even though there's a gradual recovery in the second half, the, the, the collapse in Q1 and Q2 are too great to offset. We won't offset those. Uh, we begin. We continue up the recovery path in 2021, um, and uh, that's why I said we. The, the optimism is we kind of get to levels at the end of 2021. But but again, that is I think right now considered to be an optimistic forecast. And by the way, you you if you follow the the forecast, which which I do, I follow a number of different uh, forecasters. They're all downgrading their forecast for the year. They're not upgrading their forecast for the year. They're downgrading them based on what we've already seen happen in Q1 and Q2. So um, that's, that's how I would uh, sort of, I would urge, uh, this, this gets to policy. This gets to policy because I think that both in the U.S. and actually um, in many parts of the world, the, 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 the macroeconomic policy response has been actually uh, remarkable. It's been quick. It's been big. It's been multifaceted. The macro authorities, the fiscal authorities so far in the United States, so that seems to be getting politically fraught now, and certainly the monetary authorities in the United States have said, we will do everything we can to try to put a bottom on the recession and to propel the recovery at a faster pace. So just uh, to, to, to give you a couple of important numbers, I mean, the, so far the fiscal package in the United States is about $2.8 trillion. The federal budget's deficit is on course to hit about four trillion this year. That's twenty percent of GDP. Again, those are, we we don't see anything like that in history. You got to go back into wartime, World War II, to see anything. So we have um, a huge fiscal stimulus going on, multifaceted. Now, I want to say one of the things that's true about that unemployment number: there are a Number of workers, and I still haven't seen an estimate of this, but I do know of cases of this. The unemployment compensation package we put together is so attractive that actually so many low-wage workers in small enterprises have decided not to stay, but to actually go on unemployment. You get that extra $600 a week, which we put in the unemployment compensation. We put it there for good reason, but it does, to some extent, influence the number of people who decide to go and claim unemployment insurance. So, um, but we have a huge fiscal response going on, and we have an amazing uh, monetary policy response going on. The Federal Reserve has done things it never has done before. The Federal Reserve has a small loan support facility. It's working with a, a payroll protection um, program that the federal government passed to help small businesses maintain their payrolls. So the Fed is essentially taking on insuring and buying the assets of small and medium-sized businesses. Never happened before. The Fed has actually dramatically expanded the facility to offer support to state and municipal governments who are being hammered by a decline in revenue. They have to spend more because of COVID and everything related to COVID, and their revenues have plummeted. They're in serious trouble, and their budgets are gonna all come out in the next um, several weeks. And um, I believe that we need a, a major fiscal stimulus. The Fed can only do so much. Um, but the point is there's been massive policy response to date to put a floor on the recession and to repel the recovery. And so far, I would credit the authorities for doing overall the right things. You can quibble about, you know, 
the unemployment insurance and the small business lending facility were very hard to administer. They're very hard to execute on. So it's taken long delays for people to finally get their unemployment insurance or to get their small business loan. Um, but I still think I understand why those decisions were made, and I think they were reasonable decisions. But we will, I view, my view is we will need more. And let me say something that I think might be controversial, but I firmly believe it. Right now, the federal government can borrow at negative real interest rates. Right now, people around the world want to buy U.S. government securities. Right now, the Federal Reserve has said they have an unlimited capacity to purchase government securities and hold them on their balance sheet. That means the federal government has no borrowing constraint, none. And the state and local governments surely do. And uh, the economy needs all of the fiscal support it can get. So I hope that in the next six months, we continue to see that kind of boldness we saw just a few weeks ago in the CARES Act, which was a 2.1 or 2.2 trillion dollar uh, stimulus, federal fiscal stimulus. You know, Laura, I, I completely agree with you on, um, and I've said this multiple times in different conversations we've had in, in, in these sessions, uh, that I give the federal government and the Fed great credit here. And, and as two people, uh, you and I, uh, Jim as well, who lived through the credit crisis, uh, it took a much longer period of time. Granted, they had been going through something for the first time in a while, and we just had that 12 years ago. But uh, uh, Secretary Mnuchin, this, uh, the, the, uh, the job pre uh, preservation, the PPP, where they, they channel that through the banks because you have 30 million small businesses and no way for the government to find them. They had right. to do it through the banks and they came up with that idea. So I give them a lot of credit as well uh, with what they've done so far. But as you said, you know, it, it's still substantially shut down. The numbers got to get bigger and they've got to keep going and avoid a political fight, which we can we can ask Jim about. But before I go to Jim, one more question for you, and that's on trade. We've spent a lot of your career um, and, uh, you know, there, there are major, I mean, clearly there's been a major uh, pullback uh, given everything that's going on macroeconomically around the world, but there was in and around the credit crisis and then it started building back again. Uh, but now you've got uh, you know, a lot of countries and a lot of people in countries focused on national interest. You know, there are, you know, we're going to make things going forward that we had outsourced that we're not going to outsource anymore from mass to antibiotics. Uh, can you talk a little bit about trade going forward? And um, one of the, yeah. uh, the themes that you have there is goods versus ideas as well. Just uh, let, let's let's pursue that and then we'll go to Jim. Okay, so, so first of all, as you know, the we did have a recovery in global trade uh, slowly uh, when we came out of the Great Recession. But actually, global trade never recovered its growth rate uh, relative to global output that it had enjoyed in the two or three decades leading up to the Great Recession. So we were already on a slower globalization path measured by the rate of growth of trade compared to the rate of growth of GDP, number one. Number two, we already were seeing um, what I would call either regionalization or in some sense localization of supply chains. Regionalization would mean that, you know, it's a supply chain around serving the big Chinese market. Uh, would be located more in China or close to China. Um, this, and we saw a little of that, not that much of that going on in the U.S., but we saw in, in, in Asia that. Uh, a big driver of global trade was China itself. So China itself is uh, essentially um, made a decision, and it actually predates the Great Recession, and they've been making progress on that this decision to become less dependent on trade and to rely more on domestic demand, domestic production. Um, it's called rebalancing. They realized that they were they were in all sorts of getting in all sorts of trouble for having a huge current account surplus and a huge export surplus, and we were bashing them all the time. 
And they made a decision that they could produce more uh, as they developed at home for the home market, huge, huge market, second largest in the world. Um, so that was going on uh, as well. Um, the supply chains that drove a lot of international trade uh, were becoming less labor intensive. What does that mean? It means that a lot of the supply chains initially were because companies, including U.S. companies, were looking for cheap labor. So it was called labor arbitrage. That was a reason to do this. Um, over time, what you saw is less and less of global trade was about that, and more and more of global trade was about research-intensive goods, information-intensive goods, digital services, where labor intensity was not a competitive advantage. So again, that's going to change uh, the, the way trade looks. First of all, trade in goods uh, becomes less important. Trade in services, which is much harder to measure, becomes more important. Um, and a lot of that is delivered digitally. So measures of trade which don't count for digital trade, uh, and that's hard to measure, but that's what we should be measuring, probably understate uh, trade. So on balance, what I think, I certainly think, related to your point of seeing countries saying, hmm, there are some things I really need to produce at home. I think this whole issue of what is national security and what is risk is going to become more important. It, is, it may be indeed an uh, inordinate amount of risk to have just-in-time inventory and a, and a non-diversified global source in your um, protective equipment for hospital workers. Why would you, we, we now look at that and we say, how did that, how did that even happen? But it happened. We were following just-in-time inventory rules. We weren't worried about the diversification of supply. We were worried about uh, the cost competitiveness of supply. So we did it. Uh, so I think that is likely to, that area is likely to change. And I think also uh, the whole issue before COVID was a discussion. If you think about US-China discussions, what were they frequently about? They were about 5G. They were about national security concerns related to products that were being developed in China uh, to sell around the world where we thought, we the US thought, there was a possibility they could be used to breach our national security. Now, other countries didn't agree with us, but I'm basically making the point that I think looking forward now, thinking about trade policy, countries and companies are going to look more at risk. How do I diversify? How do I keep adequate inventories? They're going to think more about, the governments are going to think about more about national security. What do I absolutely have to have produced at home? or absolutely reliable producers, reliable as I assess them to be, in other parts of the world. So those things will change. Well, that's great, Laura. Thank you so much. I'm going to circle back to you at the end, but I'm going to transition now after that great economic backdrop and summary forward to Jim, and we're going to take a look at the, uh, the political and uh, uh, governmental ramifications uh, of, of all of that and leadership. So, Jim, uh, good afternoon. Thanks again for being here. My pleasure, Craig. Thanks for having me. It was great to hear Laura. She's super smart. Thanks a lot, uh, Jim. Yeah, that was a good start. But uh, you've got a tremendous amount to add here as well. So let's dive right into it. Uh, and uh, many of our clients and, and friends of Rockefeller listening will, will see you out and about uh, all over the place in the, in the media. Um, but uh, everybody's focused uh, right after what Laura's talking about, jobs, the speed of uh, the economy cranking back up, you know, all of that topic equally as important is the election and leadership and what's happening uh, on that side. So uh, could you talk a little bit about, just lay the groundwork for us on uh, uh, the, the, you know, the federal uh, landscape, the, you know, not just president, we've got you know, the, the Senate is going to be key depending upon who's elected president. Either way, it's going to be key. So can we get uh, the Jim Messina uh, kind of top-down overview of uh, the key issues as we start to head toward November? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, this is a great way that you decided to do it because the economic stuff really is the driver. Right now, 71% 
uh, voters say the economy is the primary driver of the way they're going to think about election. Healthcare is second. Um, and historically, economic recessions are incumbent killers. You know, uh, incumbents who run for re-election when there was no recession haven't been beaten in 100 years. But incumbents for president who ran for re-election during a recession, six of the seven of them have been defeated. Only Calvin Coolidge in 1924, which not even Greg and I are old enough to remember that. Um, Coolidge is the only one to get reelected. And when you start, you know, we do a lot of kind of big data modeling. And when you start to look at every night, we run 66,000 simulations of the election. And the, the, the numbers that really move uh, uh, things are people's view of the economy. And, you know, an important thing about these voters, you know, the United States is now the most partisan country in the world. As Greg said during the intro, I've worked on campaigns on six continents. And um, what you realize is in places like the UK, where 40% of voters switch between the three parties, Mexico, where we've been involved in the last couple of presidential elections, where half the voters switch between the parties, only about 10% of Americans are really available to vote for Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden. The other 90% have all decided um, already who they're going to vote for. And when you look at those people who are the 10%, you know, they're what we would call low information voters. They think about politics four minutes a week on average. They have an average of two and a half jobs. Their economic situation is much more tenuous even before all of this. And now going into this, um, it, is, it is super important. Uh, uh, the way they view their own economic situation and how they're going to vote. It's kind of where, why you've seen a bunch of the polling you know, turn against the president recently. Um, I'm probably the largest critic of public polling in the country. I think that almost all public polling is ridiculous. Um, but if you just take the averages, you know, the president's re-election numbers have gone down as the economic situation has gone down and as his own handling of this uh, has gone down. The other interesting thing, just to compare us again internationally, is what you're seeing around the world is the rise of incumbent politicians' approval rating during the COVID crisis. Angela Merkel goes from 64 to 79. Macron goes up 14 points. Boris Johnson goes up seven points. Um, the Italian leader goes up 18 points. Donald Trump gets no bump at all. Some of it is, you know, his response, but some of it is just people's perceptions are uh, baked in about how they view the president. It's also interesting hearing Laura's numbers on, you know, when this recovery might start, because what history teaches us, and I went back and studied the last hundred years of campaigning when I ran President Obama's reelection, what history teaches us is, is voters' views of the, uh, of the economy are baked in about June of the election year. So hitting uh, the trough in May is super not great for the president um, and, you know, combines to make challenges uh, with, uh, with the healthcare stuff or with the COVID stuff that we've talked about. Um, for the president. Um, so then you kind of look and say, okay, so now we're going into this election, how do you know, we view it? I think this election's impossible to predict for three reasons. Number one, people are in real time, you know, losing their jobs and trying to figure out what the important things are. And they're now thinking about politics, talking about politics online less than any time since the advent of the internet. The second thing is, if you believe the scientists, we are going to have some sort of, of uh, second round of this in the fall. And we don't know exactly how we're going to be able to campaign. You know, President Trump's second superpower after social media is his MAGA rallies, where he's able to kind of excite his base in really important ways. And what, if he, we don't know if he's going to be able to do that. Um, President, Vice President Biden's campaign was based on the traditional Democratic constituencies of turning out voters, knocking on doors, you know, doing the kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat that we Democrats do. It is very unlikely that he can do that. Um, and so neither side is able to kind of do the thing they most want to be able to do. 
uh, and that could very, very much change how we look at that. Then we're not even sure what the rules are going to be. As you've all seen in the past month in the Wisconsin uh, thing, there are now lawsuits in every single battleground state of how the rules are actually going to be on election day. What are the vote by mail rules? Are they going to allow more vote by mail than in the past? Some states have gone you know, to all uh, vote by mail. My home state of Montana for our governor and Senate primary next month is now all vote by mail. Um, that is a very big change uh, in what you know, both parties believe, I think with some rightfulness, is that vote by mail helps them with their base and could provide uh, a bunch of voters that you're, they're not used to seeing, which could be problematic for, for both parties. So you don't know how you're gonna campaign, you don't know what the rules are gonna be, um, and then last, you're not exactly sure about what issues, because all of the polling that everyone has done uh, until COVID is now useless. Now we're having to kind of talk about things in a very, very different way and you have the emergence of China as a political issue. China is now the predominant political issue in the presidential race. I chair one of the super PACs that is spending a bunch of money against Biden, both, uh, or sorry, against Trump. Both the Trump campaign and, and the anti-Trump super PACs have uh, China bashing ads on the air. 100% of all television ads in the presidential race in the battleground states are now trying to pin China on either the president or the vice president. And that is a very, very big change from what we thought six months ago was gonna be the Democrats trying to talk about healthcare and Trump trumpeting the economy. This election is also um, what I call a super election, meaning that you have control of both houses up for grabs you know, have a Senate that is in our models 50% flippable by both parties. And this is a super election in that once every 10 years, control of the state legislatures gives you the ability to make the redistricting maps next year. So you're seeing huge spending in state legislative races, which you don't usually see because in these big battleground states, the winner of these state legislative elections and governor's elections is gonna to get to make the maps that we all use for the next decade to determine partisan representation, federal funding, and all of these incredibly important things. So uh, just to kind of end with this, and then Greg, you can ask me your next question. Don't know what the rules are gonna be, aren't sure what the issues are gonna be, but it is the most weird election we have seen and what the international stuff tell us is that it's gonna be uh, up and down the entire way. That was a fantastic overview, and uh, boy, what a what a unique election in just so many different respects. Um, you, you know, uh, a couple of things, Jim. Uh, my recollection of, uh, of President Coolidge was around uh, uh, Babe Ruth getting paid more than him and being asked what he thought about that, and uh, Ruth saying he had a better year. Um, and then <laughs> you mentioned... Uh, Economies. I didn't know this. Uh, June is when the view of uh, voters solidifies from an economic perspective. Brings me back, I think, to uh, Bush 43, where um, uh, you had a relatively brief downturn in 1990, but it was enough, uh, even after the success of the first Iraq war, to knock him off target and he never got back. And that's how, uh, or 1991, that's how, 91, uh, uh, 92, how Clinton got in. Um, but Jim, can we go to, and, and, and people are, are obviously very, very focused on this because they think given his age and, and perception that maybe, um, you know, he's had some, some health challenges, uh, and I'm talking about Vice President Biden, um, uh, can you talk a little bit about potential running mates? I mean, he's on the record that it's going to be a, a woman, so uh, that obviously narrows it a lot, uh, a lot of... Uh, dialogue about the, the different possibilities, some of the more notable ones who are also running for president, and then names, frankly, that are uh, less familiar to me, but would still be familiar to you. Um, and I'm not asking for a prediction here, but just uh, they're in the middle of it. And uh, while I'm sure there's confidences you need to uh, hold here, uh, this is a dialogue I'm sure you're in the middle of. So can you talk a, a little bit about uh, Vice President Biden's running mate to the extent uh, you can without violating confidentiality? Sure. Um, and I helped, you know, President Obama in 2008 select 
uh, Biden, so I'm pretty familiar with the process, and he has the same vetting team we had, and I think we'll be thinking through it. You know, by, on one hand, this is the most consequential pick uh, in kind of our modern lifetime, because Greg and I, in our lifetime, and Laura, remember the two picks that went south, right? Eagleton in 1972 and Sarah Palin in 2008. So the first rule is do no harm. Don't pick someone who isn't vetted and can't stand up to this whole thing. I remember for the first 48 hours of the Palin pick, her first uh, public appearance was amazing and there was panic in the Obama campaign. And Senator Obama put us all on the phone at the end of the night and said, look, everyone needs to calm down. It took me a year to figure out how to run for president. I promise you, she's not gonna figure it out in a week. And you know, five days later, she had her famous Katie Couric interview and then her Saturday Night Live thing. And, and it was basically over from that point. So Biden's first choice, first uh, deal is to make sure that it's someone who can stand up to scrutiny. And scrutiny is even tougher than it was then because we have social media now. The second thing is you have two choices. You can pick someone who compliments you, uh, your ticket, or who gives you uh, something that you didn't already have. In 2008, you know, it's been in the books that a bunch of us were for Tim Kaine over Biden. In the end, the young senator from Illinois needed some someone with gray hair and international experience, which is why he picked Biden. Um, so in that case, this is why some people have talked about Biden picking someone younger, more exciting, perhaps a person of color to give a little pizzazz to a ticket that because of age may have some challenges there. The third option is to pick someone who gives you uh, a state uh, or gives you help in a constituency you need help with. I'm very cynical about the state uh, theory, though I know lots of people are excited about it, because again, what history teaches us is the VP gives you about 1.2% uh, bump in, you, in his home or her home state. That's over the last 100 years. Also, in the last 20 VP picks, 15 of them have been senators. Uh, I'll pick on Paul Ryan in 2012. You know, uh, Romney picked him in part because he was from Wisconsin and Barack Obama carried Mitt Romney, or, uh, Paul Ryan's congressional district, which shows you geographic doesn't matter. A much better choice um, was kind of Bill Clinton picking Al Gore, two young moderate Southerners who kind of, you know, excited the country and said, we're moderate, we can do this together. That's why some people are pushing Vice President Biden to pick someone from the Midwest. When you when we talk about the map, which I'm sure we're going to, the Midwest is a key to all of it. And so that's why you're hearing names like Amy Klobuchar, or Governor Whitmer, Tammy Baldwin, um, et cetera. You know, they are publicly vetting about 10 people, all of them women. They're gonna go through these questions back and forth. They're gonna, they're gonna scrub these people cleaner than uh, any any medical facility in the world to make sure they don't have any holes. Um, but I, if I was the Biden campaign, and I am happily not, I'm very happy to be talking about it on TV instead of doing it every day. But if I was them, I would pick someone sooner rather than later, because in this virtual world, you need someone else out there campaigning for you. Jamie, you, uh, th that's terrific. And uh, the transition is a perfect one, because, and you set this up before. Um, because you talked about the fact that 90% of Americans, and I'd never heard this before, it's just staggering. And uh, you know, if we had more time or a different time, we, we, we could talk about whether this is in the country's interest. I, I, would, I would say unequivocally not, that 90% of people uh, come into an election and are either left or right, uh, or you know, a Republican or Democrat out of the gate. I, I can't see how, how that's a positive, um, but it is what it is. So if you use that as the backdrop, battleground states, and, and this is also problematic for country as well, states including many that we all live in that really on a presidential basis, candidates don't have to visit and, and uh, you know they, they know it's gonna be in one camp or the other, but we're down to a handful of states again. Uh, can you, uh, and nobody's closer to this, uh, and I would guess the 14.7% unemployment and the trajectory Laura talked about make some of these states even more you know, even closer and more critical. Can you walk through the handful of states that are going to determine whether it's uh, a second term for Donald Trump or whether uh, Joe Biden will be president? Yep. So to your point, Greg, I think we're down to six states. 
we can argue uh, maybe eight, but I'll just tell you my six. And I put them in tiers. Um, and you're right, I could talk about this for the rest of our life. So at some point, just tell me to shut up. Um, but the first tier is the three Midwestern states of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. A reminder that President Trump won all three of these states by a combined 79,646 votes, which I would like to point out is less that are in the big house or Camp Randall or Nittany Stadium uh, on a college football Saturday, right? We're talking about really close numbers here. And since then, like every incumbent, Trump's numbers have fallen because the first thing you do as president is piss people off. So these are the three states everyone's advertising in. These are the, the only three states that uh, President Trump is advertising in right now. And I think they will decide the election. We talked about the, uh, the 66,000 models we run. In 70% of those models, Wisconsin is the most important state in America, which is very different, right, than last time, which was Florida. In 2012, the tipping point state was Virginia. In 2008, it was Colorado. Um, now we're in Wisconsin. And I think of those three states, you have to say Michigan looks super hard for President Trump. Um, I would be surprised if he's still spending money there. Uh, he needs to win two of the three of these. Um, uh, then Pennsylvania, um, which, you know, will be very, both parties have very active campaigns going in Pennsylvania and then Wisconsin. Then there's the tier two states. Um, the biggest one is probably Arizona. Um, if the Democrats can't carry Wisconsin, they have to have Arizona. Arizona is a state that I salivated over in two Obama campaigns, but could never afford to really put into play. Democrats have started to win. You know, we just won the big U.S. Senate race there uh, two years ago. We have Mark Kelly, uh, former astronaut, running as a Senate candidate. Vice President Biden sets up pretty well uh, in Arizona, but that state will be very contested. Republicans haven't lost that state uh, in a very, very long time in a presidential race. And the last two are Florida and North Carolina. North Carolina, Barack Obama is the only Democrat to win North Carolina since 1976. Um, but uh, Trump barely won last time. You have a very popular incumbent Democratic Governor Roy Cooper up for election and one of the biggest U.S. Senate races in America as well. And then the great state of Florida. Florida is you know, what I call the 1% state. It's almost always a 1% election. The last four governor's elections have been 1%. Three of the last four presidential elections have been 1%. The issue for Florida is it's a $100 million investment. And so Vice President Biden just has to figure out whether or not he can spend $100 million to compete in Florida. The other interesting thing in Florida, which you know the New Yorkers on the call will understand, everyone in New York retires to Florida. And Florida has always been by a point or two in the entire Trump presidency, Trump's best battleground state. His numbers are always a little bit better there because there's so many New Yorkers there who kind of grew up with Donald Trump uh, and because he spends time there and he's now a registered voter there. Um, so though that's the second tier. Both parties will attempt to put other uh, uh, states in play. The Democrats are talking about Texas and Georgia. You know, I think I will be a supermodel if we're able to put those in play. Um, President Trump has talked about Minnesota. You know, that looks like the Midwestern state, so I think he'll spend some time there. And then they still believe that they can put New Mexico into play. If President Trump carries New Mexico, um, Greg and I will both be supermodels. So I think all those silly plays will, will go away pretty soon and will be on the six states I talked about. Jim, that's spectacular insight. I mean, it really is. And uh, my my uh, my children are laughing at the supermodel uh, notion, I'm sure. So uh, I bet he doesn't carry that state. Um, the, uh, the, the Senate, let's talk about the Senate for a second. And again, um, one of the things that you can speak to uh, better than most is um, how closely tied it is to what you just described. Uh, you've got these close elections uh, in a number of states. Uh, you know, will a lot of these very close elections follow? I mean, if Trump holds on, does that, uh, you know, I guess some of this is tautological. That's got to help a little at the margin. But where do you see the Senate falling? Uh, you know, do, do the Democrats have a chance? You know, which races are the ones that are, are, are going to be the most watched by people like you? 
the, the people in them are, are going to argue they're all close, but which ones do you think could be really tight? And, and do you think, uh, where, where do you think the Senate will end up? Yeah, so here's an interesting number. In 2016, for the first time in American political history, the party whose presidential candidate carried that state won every single close contested Senate election, meaning that the top of the ticket really does matter. And it goes back to my point about um, partisanship. So if Trump won your state, you won the Senate race. If Hillary won your state, you won the Senate race. That is a particularly um, scary number for both parties, uh, but it makes the Senate incredibly interesting. Um, the other thing that, that's interesting about the Senate is this is the class of 2014. Obviously, all these people who got elected last ran in 2014, which is the year the Republicans took the U.S. Senate. And so they have a whole bunch of freshmen who have only won one election. Uh, and the, the hardest election is always your your first re-election campaign because the first time everyone loves you and thinks you're a uniter and then you have six years to piss them off. And so you have a whole bunch of freshmen who are sitting in seats. Um, so if you kind of look at the seats, there's one Democratic incumbent who is endangered, that is Gary Peters in Michigan. Uh, if I'm right, and Michigan kind of isn't the most contested state, he'll probably be okay. Um, there's then nine or 10 freshman uh, Republicans who are in contested races. Let me just do the, the ones that the Republicans should win. You know, there's two seats in Georgia now. Georgia's a weird state because of the, they had to cancel the primary in Georgia. We now won't know who the candidates are until August, um, but the Republicans had two in, in, incumbent as one of them was an appointed incumbent to protect in uh, Georgia. They should win both of those, but one of the incumbents has been uh, involved in a scandal about members who traded on inside information pre-COVID, so we'll see. Uh, Joni Ernst in Iowa is in a tied race. She's a freshman. John Cornyn in Texas. Uh, and then Doug Jones, the Democrat of Alabama, it's favored to lose because Trump's going to carry Alabama by 20 points. Um, the Republicans have a very big contested runoff there, and we won't know who the candidate against Doug Jones is, but Republicans are picked to, to pick up that seat. And then Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate, is involved in the most expensive Senate race uh, in America. He should win that race, but every Democrat that I know is uh, giving money to his opponent. Then there's the five races that everyone thinks are the toss-up races. Remember that Democrats need three uh, pick up three to tie if they win the presidency, or if they lose the presidency, they need four to take over the majority. So these five races are super important. Uh, the first one is Susan Collins in Maine, a Republican. Second one is Martha McSally, the appointed senator in Arizona, Republican is running against Mark Kelly. Um, both those women are currently trailing their Democratic incumbents. Cory Gardner, the freshman Republican in Colorado. Tom Tillis, the freshman uh, Republican in North Carolina, and then Steve Daines, uh, the freshman Democrat, or sorry, Republican in Montana, who has the problem against running against a very popular governor of Montana, um, who's my former roommate, by the way. So it should be disqualifying to be my former roommate and be a U.S. senator, but they let him be the governor, so maybe that's possible. Those five races will determine control of the United States Senate. That's great. It's a tour de force. Um, Okay, well, I'm going to shift. Uh, I'm coming back to you, Jim, but I'm going to shift to Laura for a final word. Um, not that I have to prod you on this, Laura, but uh, it's Friday afternoon, uh, another long week. Uh, we're happy. We're happy with an optimistic bent on your final word. <laughs> an optimistic bent. Uh, I will go back to my optimism that the. Um, Federal Reserve and the federal government uh, now operating under significant pressure from the governors, all of the governors, Republican and Democrats, will actually continue to support, a, to put a floor on the bottom, which I think will be this quarter. So if Jim is right, I think this is going to be the worst quarter, and that could have an effect on the election. But uh, my optimism would be policy response, and I also want to underscore policy response for the governors uh, who are doing 
uh, amazing things, uh, oftentimes coordinating with, with other governors uh, to both deal with some of the economic consequences and also the healthcare consequences. And I would end with a point of optimism on the election. Everyone knows I'm a Democrat. I think uh, it was true before we entered this that women were going to matter a lot. I think the heartless nature of Trump's response, not just the policy response, but his inability to feel for the American people what they are going through is actually going to have an effect on voters. So even though I despair at the 90% go into the booth, you know, look, it's hard to make economic projections now based on previous recessions. I think it may be hard to make political predictions now based on previous simulations of previous runs. This is fundamentally changing how people feel about government and government's responsibility and about leadership and heart. And so I will end on the optimistic note that we will have uh, the mobilization of the young and the women, uh, and it will look different in this election because of that. Great, well, thank you very much. Um, and uh, uh, terrific all the way uh, across the board, uh, uh, Laura. Uh, Jim, uh, you get the last word, and then I will wrap up with one of my favorite quotes uh, uh, which is the way that I like to, to pull these together. Optimistic bent uh, from you to Mr. Messina, uh, as you see fit. Yeah, so I am in general, as my wife teases me all the time, an inherent optimist. And a couple of years ago, after a quarter of a century of living in the logic-free zone of Washington, D.C., I moved to San Francisco. Um, and, you know, when you do world politics and you advise all these world leaders, you get a chance to see various political systems and economic systems. And this is something that kind of have bonded Greg and I as friends. You know, every single day living in San Francisco, I'm more optimistic about our economic future than ever before. I'm on the phone every day with entrepreneurs who are helping figure out pieces of the COVID crisis that are uh, advancing technologies that are going to help find a cure for this thing. To Laura's earlier point that are you know, building new ways to respond. I was on the phone yesterday with governors who are you know, now saying, look, we realize that some of the things we've been doing for the last hundred years, just because we always do them, like the DMV, turns out you don't need to go to the DMV. And they really can find a new way to do this. And I think coming out of this, if you had to pick one hand, one economic hand around the world, you'd pick ours. You'd pick our ability to innovate out of this. You'd pick our ability to figure out how we can do this. Policy, to Laura's point, does deeply matter. Um, and we got to get this right. And I'm hopeful we can have a partner in the federal government soon that actually cares about policy. But going forward, even if we don't, even if, if my worst fears are, are realized and Trump wins, I think America is going to be OK because, you know, as Thomas Jefferson once said, we have the worst system of government ever except for every other system. You know, we are going to get out of this in part because of all the economic work all of your companies do and all the people on the phone. And I feel more strongly in the middle of the worst crisis we've seen since World War II that coming out of this, America is going to prosper like never before. That was terrific. And, uh, you know, I want to thank uh, both Laura and Jim for uh, exceptional insight. And this is reflective of uh, the unique proprietary thinking uh, and intellectual capital that we're trying to bring to our clients at Rockefeller Capital Management. And uh, on both of their uh, closing notes, Jim, you ended exactly where I, I am every day because I'm watching from talking to clients who own businesses and are looking for advice uh, and, and talking to, to, to different companies across the spectrum on what they're doing to move forward. This economy and this country will emerge uh, at the end of this still as the greatest economy in the world. And I'm confident on that, whatever happens in whatever elections. Uh, and I feel that fundamentally every day. And I, I have, um, uh, you know, uh, three children that are uh, in their early 20s. And that generation is looking at this and they're saying, wait a minute, are we going to be OK with the hand we're getting? And I say, yes, you are. It's going to be a difficult transition here for some time. But in the final analysis, the run ahead over the next 50, 60, 70, 100 years in this country is still going to be a very positive one. Uh, so I'm going to end uh, on a quote uh, that reinforces this notion uh, that I pulled out the other day. 
that I'd never heard uh, from one of the uh, uh, leading families and, and uh, leading political families in our nation's history. This is Bobby Kennedy in 1966, uh, who said the following, quote, this world demands the qualities of youth, not a time of life, but a state of mind, a temper of the will, a quality of the imagination, a predominance of courage over timidity, of the appetite for adventure over the life of ease. That was 1966, I was three, and he was uh, talking about the same sentiment in that quote that I feel, and I tried to summarize not as uh, eloquently as he did on the back of what, what Jim said. So from all of us at Rockefeller Capital Management, please enjoy the weekend, stay healthy, safe, and upbeat. We look forward to uh, uh, having you all here again next Friday when we welcome David McCormick, who's the CEO of Bridgewater Associates, the largest hedge fund in the world. Many thanks again to Laura and Jim for a spectacular uh, set of insights for us today. All the best.